When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Can anyone out hawk the Fed? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Michael Cow, the CEO of Akinoth Capital Management and author of the Substack, urbancowboy.substack.com. I think I got that right. I, I called it Cowboy Musings. I don't know if you call it that, Michael, but. Yeah, pretty much. We're excited. We're excited about it. Uh, and it's great to have you back on with us. It's been it's a been, while. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, it's been too long. But there's been so much going on. So I feel like this is, and everyone, almost everyone is is saying, God, it's really complicated right now. So I think it's such a great time to have you on. Let's start a little near term. We had the Fed minutes come out just a short time ago. Uh, they they predate all of the data. So it, it's a little bit, you know, backward looking. Um, but the Fed has been sort of top of mind because we've seen this big swing in sentiment. The bond market now almost fully pricing in a June rate hike, although we did see Treasury yields move a little bit lower today. You know, what what is your thinking around the Fed? Does that seem appropriate given what we're hearing from the Fed officials and the data we've seen? I have been, I mean, this has been my base case since early um, last year, to be honest, right? I, I've been saying for a while now that I expect uh, a, a structural inflation that's going to be uh, hard to get rid of. And, uh, you know, you know, I've, I've uh, been tweeting all last year that I just don't think that um, an imminent Fed pivot is in the cards. And, they, and they've said that, right? But, it's, uh, but the market, especially the bond market, has chosen to not believe uh, the Fed. But, you know, everything uh, seems to point in that direction. And with the recent spate of uh, upward CPI revisions and and the, even the, the recent print, um, and especially given how how strong uh, the economy has has proven, um, I mean, this doesn't come as a surprise to me at all. Which is why I'm I think that we're about to see a resurgence in the dollar wrecking ball again. Ooh, that's always that's always a scary prospect. Uh, let, let's let's back up one second. So. There was a there was a feeling that the Fed, and I think it probably came from Powell's, you know, press conference when he didn't seem as sort of angry and kind of talked about inflation moving in the right direction. I think people kind of ran with that mistakenly. If if we listen to what you just said, uh, how does the Fed fit in with gl- what's happening globally with the global central banks? We started the show with a question that you po- posed in one of your pieces: Can anyone? Outhawk the Fed. I mean, is the Fed the lead car here in in this fight against inflation? 
I really think so. Um, I, I, yeah. So that that thread that you're alluding to, I think I wrote that back in um, uh, in Jan beginning of January, and I basically pointed out that um, you know there there are a number of reasons, and I see you have uh, one of the one of the charts from that thread up there about uh, household uh, debt to income ratios. But in that thread, I highlighted, for instance, the U.S. is relatively low household uh, debt to income ratios. Uh, the 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 uh, the U.S. is the lowest in terms of percentage of uh, uh, variable rate mortgages um, uh, from a central bank, you know, uh, you know asset uh, weight perspective. Also, uh, the U.S. has the most uh, maneuverability, and you couple that with just the the relative strength of the U.S. I mean, when you when you look at uh, for instance, the Eurozone, or you look at uh, the UK, even though um, the rates of inflation there are still significantly higher than they are here, I think it's a mistake to just think that uh, Andrew Bailey or Christine Lagarde could really keep up with Powell because I think uh, the last uh, UK GDP print was already skirting uh, the zero bound. Um, so, and, and not to mention, we all know about the guilt fragilities. Mm -hmm. um, Right. And so and then the ECB has its own issues with trying to, you know, juggle a whole bunch of uh, different spreads that they need to keep together uh, with the TPI. And then you come to the big elephant in the room, which is China. Oh, I forget. You know, before we get to China, you talk and Japan obviously is constrained by its uh, yield curve control policy. And, uh, you know, the market had a complete went into a complete tizzy just because they relaxed that down by 25 basis points. I still think that. Um, you know, the, the incoming BOJ uh, governor uh, will have to choose if he if he has to choose between sacrificing the JGB market or sacrificing the yen, it's got to be the yen, I think. Mm. Uh, and and um, and then you come to the big elephant in the room, which is China, uh, who we're having who we're embroiled in this great power competition with. Right. Um, China, I think, is especially vulnerable because, um, you know, they're. They're still reeling from the effects of Evergrande, not to mention this, uh, you know, multiple years of uh, quixotic, um, you know, zero COVID. So, you know, this, you know, you know, today I, 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 I was kind of trolling a little bit <laughs> on Twitter saying, you know, I just want to know two things. I mean, did I miss the great China reopening? I wrote I wrote a thread um, about that as well, saying, you know, kind of poo pooing this whole idea that the great China reopening was going to um, cause, you know, uh, some people were calling for oil to spike to 200. And, you know, as much of a, as much as I'd like that to happen, since I am a long-term bull and I'm invested long-term in that thesis, I really think that 2023 uh, is going to be challenging uh, for oil, at least in the first uh, two or three quarters of this year because of the demand destruction situation and the fact that, you know, China, you know, this great reopening was so anticipated, but yet they're coming into it from a, uh, a from a, a big position of weakness, right? Their, their product um, inventory is already at tank tops. So what are they going to, it's kind of like, you know, what are you going to do for an encore? It's already kind of priced in. So uh, I see, uh, I see the PBOC uh, doing all it can to try to resuscitate the Chinese economy. And to me, 
that just puts more downward pressure on the yuan and mm. pressure on the dollar. Wow. This is why we love having you on, Michael. There's like 20 things we need to unpack from, from that <laughs> answer, and they're all so important. Let's, let's talk about the, the dollar wrecking ball first, though. So, you, you know, we, we had a lot of people saying, you know, that the top is in on the dollar, you know, that it extended, it maybe extended even beyond where it would have been, that, that's it. The high is in. We have seen in the last three weeks or so the dollar strengthening again. Do you see a prolonged period of dollar strength because of the central bank policy and the fact that the that there isn't anyone to outhawk the Fed, as you put it? Or is this a shorter term feeling that we're going to see that dollar strengthening again? I, I, I think it's both short term and long term. And, and the reason why I think uh, longer term also is because I think there is now a geopolitical reason to to keep a, to keep the dollar strong. So, you know, in fact, you know, I I just came back two weeks ago from um, an interesting symposium at West Point where I co-authored a paper um, uh, entitled um, "U.S. Dollar Primacy in an Era of Economic Warfare," and the idea. We covered a lot of ground in that paper. Um, we talked about the importance of defending our flank from an industrial policy perspective, but we also and we also talk about the importance of when people talk about how the U.S. has weaponized the dollar, mm -hmm. mainly referring to the seizure of uh, you, you know basically uh, Russian reserve assets, right, and financial sanctions. Um, and so, in our paper, we actually talk about how. That should be a shot across the bow of our policymakers because when you over-rely on sanctions, it definitely does encourage um, our adversaries to look for alternatives. However, um, given um, that, given the U.S. dollars, uh, uh, given the U.S. dollars, you know, uh, hegemonic role in world trade, 60% of global reserves. Um, you know, 90% of all FX uh, transactions. That game, I believe, is still the U.S.'s to lose. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, and and so, one of the things that we talk about in, at the at the end of the paper is how we're at a very interesting crossroads from a macroeconomic standpoint, where the U.S. for all of the reasons that we just opened with and talked about, right? The U.S. is in a comparatively stronger and more resilient position uh, than its primary adversary, China, right? In, in terms of being able to weather a strong dollar policy and higher rates. We are still hiking to, in the name of combating domestic inflation, right? Mm. But um, a, a strong dollar, and I observe that you know, the a strong dollar uh, has the potential to kill multiple birds with one stone, meaning that one, it is legitimately fighting domestic inflation. But number two, right, it delivers um, uh, asymmetric an asymmetric, um, uh, I guess, uh, burden on our on our primary geopolitical adversary because. The big tell to me, so you would think, right? You would think that China being an export-driven economy would want a weaker yuan. You would think that they yeah. would welcome, right? But 
to me, the big tell that, uh, that uh, they have other issues that they're worried about, meaning capital flight, is that when the dollar really spiked in, I believe it was Q4 of last year, right? Q3 and Q4 of last year. What did China, what did the PBOC do? They intervene to actually strengthen the yuan, mm. right? When, when you would expect them to welcome a weaker yuan. So yeah. to me, to me, that was a big, big tell, right? That that they're they're very, very worried about capital flight. Um, there was a great uh, 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 this guy Andrew Hunt in the UK. He did this. Uh, I alluded to this in a space in a Twitter space yesterday. Um, he did a recent YouTube interview where he talked about how he did. He he he's done some proprietary research. Um, on 36 of uh, China's largest banks, and it, that he believes, right, that there is basically a four trillion dollar liability gap that is not captured in the public balance of payments data. Mm. It, when you look at the Chinese banking sector, the biggest problem, um, and and I have I have one of these charts borrowed from uh, Peter Zehan's latest book, in that in that who's going to outhawk the Fed thread, that shows. China's total private credit, um, literally off the charts compared to uh, every other uh, large economy, and this is basically the same theme, same theme, right? You've got a you've got an over levered economy that has basically uh, borrowed short term in um, dollar denominated debt, and so when you've got a and there, this is a country that's importing 80 to 90 percent of its oil that's also denominated in U.S. dollars. So even though right now the world is being granted somewhat of a reprieve in oil prices, um, I, I, I still think that in the next several years, because of a whole, and this is a whole topic of a different thread, that, that oil prices have the potential to spike. Um, and if you have oil prices spiking at the same time the dollar is strong, um, China's going to be in a very, very vulnerable position economically. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Is, is, do, do you think this is what is driving them to? Because there's a lot of concern right now about the position vis a vis Russia. Uh, you know, the thought was that they they not really keen on what's going on and, and you saw some distance between them. But now there's the visits. They're back out in the opening of COVID. It may be optics, but do you think that need to keep their oil price low, even if the world prices are high, is part of what's driving their strategy with Russia? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, both China and India have been the have been beneficiaries of these uh, uh, price caps uh, uh, from from the West, right? Um, but I I think what's really interesting the interesting dynamic to think about here is that 
you know, those incentives, they, they, they have their China and India's incentives run counter to Russia's incentives, right? Because Russia obviously wants to maximize commodity prices. Um, China and India are totally happy to see these price caps, uh, you know, and, and receive these discounts. Now, the problem with China and India, though, is that the extent to which they can capitalize on these discounts is somewhat limited now because they're already kind of filled up. Right. Um, yeah. So there's there's there, there are so many uh, there's so many uh, you know ripples and counter ripples <laughs> in this macroeconomic pond that it's that it's uh, it's very very hard to analyze what's going to happen. It is, and you know it's interesting. I I love that image too. I know you you were talking about that that you know we had this very placid environment for so long because of liquidity. And now you've had these major shock events that are kind of creating all this turbulence. And it's, it's, it is hard to, to figure out, I don't want to say what's real, but figure out what you should be investing in and what might be more temporary and noise. Um, I'm laughing as the phone's ringing. I don't know if it's us or you, but it's like, is the general calling? I think maybe the general's <laughs> calling. I, lo I love that you were at a, a West Point symposium. It's, it's such great intel. On the strong dollar, and by the way, if you have a question for Michael, you know what to do. Put it in the chat and we'll we'll try to get, I know this is going to fly by this 30 minutes, but we'll try to get to them if we can, or you can tweet us at Real Vision. If, if, if a strong, there are geopolitical reasons to keep a strong dollar, what, what happens to corporates? I mean, a strong dollar is not great for earnings and for presumably stock prices. No, I, I think, I, I think this is, it's not a, it's not a sanguine, outlook for uh, risk assets, especially given how far they've come, right? I think that I, I, I tweeted earlier, literally just a couple of minutes ago saying that, you know, to me, this, this setup right now, it feels very much like we're in Q1 of 22. And mm -hmm. if you go back and look at your various charts of where equities were, where gold was, where, crypt, where Bitcoin was, go look at where we were in Q1 of 22. Ooh. Um, but that, to me, that's that's where it feels. That's how it feels. I mean, after you know, after uh, last year's late last year's big risk off, I thought, okay, well, maybe we finally moved to the third inning of this. What I think is going to be a long, drawn out, difficult period. But honestly, the risk on of the last several months, I think, have rolled us back to like the second inning. It's um, that, and that's that's very worrisome. But but the good news, hey, look. To me, the good news is that um, Tina, remember her? Mm. She's kind of died a grisly death. And, and her friend Tia, there is an alternative, um, <laughs> is, has taken center stage. So I'm very happy to clip, you know, four and three quarters risk-free um, and, and just like bide my time. I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm pretty defensively positioned right now, but I, I've been building a lot of liquidity because I don't. I'm I'm not um, sanguine on risk assets. So, how so? Is it just that we grind and it's this choppy environment for risk assets, or do you think there could be another serious leg down? If you're talking about comparisons to Q122, how ugly could this get? You know, so 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 that's that's been the lack of volatility has been the one of the biggest confounding things. Um, of this of this grind, right? And you know, there's so many 
theories that I've that I've heard uh, from you know the prevalence of the the zero data expiration options to perhaps the uh, the um, the countervailing forces of you know energy outperformance vis-a-vis other sectors and whatnot. I don't really have a have a have a great answer for that. Um, I was incorrectly positioned. One of my worst trades in Q4, I'll be honest with you, was being long, uh, you know, VIX, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was uh, that was a terrible trade. So I blew out of it. I'm like, you know what? Maybe that indicator is broken, like some people say. So um, I'm I'm not playing that. Um, um, I don't know. Yeah, the it's answer, the answer it's strange. A lot of people have been pointing to this, and it it's strange and it worries them because they, you know. You, there may be an explanation we don't know, or it, things are just coiling, which means that when it when it breaks, it's going to be even more severe. You mentioned Japan, the BOJ. This is another one of these things. I think I saw Brent Donnelly tweeting today, weird there's not more activity in the options market around this event, which everyone kind of knows they're going to be forced to make this decision. Does that does that worry you that when you see that changeover and they're going to have to, I think you said, choose between the yield curve and the yen? Do you worry about the implications of that? Because it seems like one way or the other, we're going to see an extreme move. I do. I do. Um, you know, I'm I'm not playing in the yen myself, mainly because I see that I see the potential of some sort of violent move one way or the other. Um, but, but yet if, if I had to make a move there, um, I would rather be short than long the yen. Um, um, yeah, I don't, it's, it's, uh, you know, I, I, a couple of months ago, um, you may remember I wrote a thread, I called it, this is kind of like an every man for himself kind of geopolitical mosh pit. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I retweeted it today because I feel like that it's so it's still very very much relevant because the the geo the geopolitical um, objectives are certainly divergent amongst the economic zones, but so too are the macroeconomic uh, objectives. So it, it it literally is an every man for himself dynamic out there, and so. Um, and that's why I think, you know, this, th- that's why I think this, this paper that we're going to re- release this weekend might be interesting to, to your viewers, because we're basically just pointing out that, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's an interesting time. You, you typically, you know, when, when you look at the past and, and you look at, for instance, um, you know, the, the considerations that uh, the powers that be were contemplating when they drafted Bretton Woods, right? Mm. Um, the concerns were always that there would be kind of like a, a beggar thy neighbor approach to competitive devaluation, right? Um, but, but now I actually think that the, 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 uh, it actually behooves us to actually have a stronger dollar Mm-hmm. Um, from a from a geostrategic standpoint, even though that isn't necessarily, um, uh, you know, uh, good for the economy. But but let's let's face mm-hmm. it that 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 also aligns with our domestic policy. Right, we're mm-hmm. the, the Fed is actively trying to curtail inflation, and so right. you know, that is paribus, 
you do want a stronger dollar for that as well. That's a really, I just want to underline what you said a moment ago, because that's a really big thought, this complete change in the view of currencies because of the geopolitical backdrop we're in right now, because it was always, I mean, you know, if anyone remembers when Bob Rubin was secretary, he would always say strong dollars in U.S. interests because everybody thought they were trying to devalue it. And it was the whole, you know, contest with the rest of the world, Japan, so you could get the trade advantages from a weaker dollar. That was always the thinking is that there would be a competitive devaluation. That was the concern. Oh, yeah. And now you flip that around. It's completely different that you see people trying to, to to keep their currency strong. That's like a completely different regime that you have to think about. I want to bring up one, you know, in this sort of very cloudy environment with all this uncertainty, another thing that people have been talking about is, you know, trying to figure out what's going on with supply chains because it's so connected to the inflation situation that we're trying to unravel. My colleague Andreas spoke about this with Jacob Shapiro, who's the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Let's listen to a clip of what they had to say. No, I don't think supply chains are going to ease throughout 2023. That doesn't mean that there is an opportunity there, uh, but I think it's a mistake to think that you know the last couple of years was, oh, we had a COVID-19 pandemic and we had U.S.-China trade war and eventually things are going to get back to normal. That's not the way things are going. I think that you're seeing countries, companies, everybody's rebuilding new supply chains, not based on just-in-time principles or efficiency, but based on redundancy and resilience and political risk. And if you know, if two or three things on my risk uh, framework uh, pop out, do I have backups and do I have backup supply chains in place so that I can t continue to serve clients overall? So I think in 23, we're still in a, in a world where People haven't been able to do that yet. People are still looking for different countries and different options that they can move their manufacturing to while still being overly dependent on China or on a, on a small number of countries in the Asia Pacific. So I, I think this is a multi-year process where you're going to see supply chains reorganize themselves. That full interview is available on our website. If you're not a member, hit the QR code and find out how to join. Really fascinating conversation. They spent a lot of time talking about semiconductors, which was really interesting. Um, Michael, as you look at, this is like another one of these issues. And as you pointed out, we have them everywhere as you're trying to figure out, is this temporary? Is this a structural change? How is that going to affect? How do you navigate an environment with so little clarity? I mean, is it is it just having a much higher level of cash? Well, for, yeah, for sure. Well, let me, let me just address one point before before I even answer that question. So first of all, I agree with the sentiment in that in that clip. And I was going to mention that the other uh, uh, sort of, you know, policy um, uh, objective of our of our paper, right, was to point out that we were we make big comparisons between the semiconductor uh, industry and the oil and gas industry. And we point out that finally, right, the, the, uh, the administration or, you know, the powers that be in our government are recognizing that we, there, there needs to be a little bit of a, uh, a, uh, a subsidy to, to incent reshoring of critical supply chains in the semiconductor space. But yet, when you look at, for in, the other critical industry, the other critical supply chain, which is you know oil and gas, right? Because of ESG initiatives, we have actually left ourselves in a very very precarious position there, right? Between between the uh, SPR releases mm -hmm. before a geopolitical emergency to all of the 
um, sort of hostile rhetoric and 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 um, you know threats of windfall profits taxes and whatnot. So we're we're pointing out that we need to first almost have a uh, a Hippocratic oath uh, and at least do no harm. And and it seems like we are undermining um, our an area where we have an innate competitive advantage. We are the U.S. is still the largest oil producer right now. We're producing more bell, barrels per day than Saudi Arabia or Russia, but but yet we are undermining an area where we're 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 uh, we should be really sort of bolstering, you know. Mm. But and then to to answer your question, yeah, I mean, look, my um, my my playbook uh, has been, you know, I I don't want to. The, the the theme I wrote about in that in that macroeconomic pond um, thread is which is to, great. Everyone should go read it. It's great. <laughs> thank you. Um, it's basically just to show that you know it. Yeah, we had this placid pond. It got interrupted by a big rock thrown in the center, and then even initially, those ripples emanating out from the middle of the pond, representing sort of you know ever widening the ever widening arc of uh, of inflation, right? That was relatively easy to call, at least you know, like so. So for me, I was I was very very you know bearishly positioned throughout the year. But then, as these ripples start hitting, encountering some kind of resistance, right, uh, in the form of counter ripples, meaning you know Fed action, demand destruction, some of those ripples wind up counteracting, uh, you know, some of those counter ripples wind up counteracting the ripples, and then. But then, but then there's this confusing interplay where some some of the counter ripples actually augment the original ripples. Me, so I'll give you an example of that. So when I talk about the dollar, right, the dollar, a, a strong dollar, is a counter ripple to inflation here, but it is an augmentative ripple mm -hmm. outside of the U.S. And so, so then, what does that what does that do to central bank policies outside of the US. It's so hard to read. And so I just want to highlight that I, I think at the end of my thread, I basically said, look, I think we're in this environment, which I call the big chop right now. It's, it's basically, you think of a pond where you've got ripples everywhere and you can't even see your own reflection anymore. And the big mistake would be to read every little ripple as like some big, the start of some big new trend, which, you know, I, I the, the number of times that I've seen with this recent risk on calling it like, you know, the start of like a brand new bull market, mm -hmm. I just kind of roll my eyes. I'm like, how, what, what possibly are they seeing that I'm not seeing? Because to me, that's as clear as mud. I cannot see that. And, and um, I just don't want to commit any unforced errors here. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. 
I think this is a really important point to bring up. It's something that we touched on in the newsletter as well today, inspired by the fact that you were coming on. And I think we're so programmed for action, right? The idea of sitting and not doing anything feels uncomfortable. People are trying to time it. They're trying to get that entry point. But maybe that's not always the right thing to do. Yeah, I uh, so so t- so today I just I went back and I was I I had this I I kept this ongoing uh, investing ruminations thread um, over over the last two years and I I really it's it's kind of like my own journal of like trading lessons that I've learned throughout my career and I and I put it in an ongoing thread but then I thought you know what I actually went and I collated it and I put it on my Substack today. Um, and uh, just rereading it actually just just helped me think of. I, I need to take my own advice, uh, is what I'm saying. <laughs> and one of the and you, when you talk about patience, that's a that's a critical one, right? Because yeah, I I I have uh, twitchy uh, trigger fingers too, right? I've basically been in professional money management for like close to thirty years, and even though I'm officially retired from that, um, and I don't have to do that anymore. I still have that that urge to overtrade sometimes, and I have to sometimes force myself to go in a different room, even away from my screens, and go read a book. <laughs> yeah, remove yourself. From, That's right <laughs> from yes. the danger. So yes. I, I'm going to completely. Um, you're all going to support me if I get I get in trouble. I'm going to go a little bit longer on this one because we haven't had you in so long, Michael, and you brought up so many good things. <laughs> we have people asking about where do you see the terminal rate for. For the ten-year, what do you what do you think the range of the terminal rate on the ten-year will end up? That's from TC. You know, I I, I don't want to poo-poo the question, but I, I I've said this before in sp- in these spaces. To me, that's kind of like analyzing the tread depth of the bulldozer that's about to roll over your head. I don't really care. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be a painful point, whether it's gonna be you know five and a quarter or six and a quarter. But I I don't I don't. I don't really care about that, and I don't. I, I don't. I don't. You know, trade that type of those types of uh, um, you know minutia in a way. Mm-hmm. I'm not that kind of a trader. I tend to look for um, you know high conviction um, fundament. Most of the money that I've made in my career has been on micro trades. Even though mostly most people on Twitter know me for talking about macro stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm really biding my time to 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 find micro bargains when the shit really hits the fan, and I don't think the shit's hit the fan yet. Well, and that's and that's saying something. Uh, another question on your view from Chilinex: What's your view on gold in the current environment? Gold has always been a real uh, conundrum to me because uh, it's 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 very very noisy and I I, I think um, like Bitcoin the problems I have with a sort of chameleon asset class where the narrative keeps changing you know sometimes it's a hedge against inflation sometimes it's a you know it's a you know hedge against uh, a fight to fight to safety whatever you want to call it. I don't like those types of trades because I can't clearly identify what the underlying driver is. Um, as my good friend um, Alex Stahl, uh points out, he's done some interesting regression work on gold. And he says that basically, you know, based on where we are in the macroeconomic cycle, the gold should be closer to around 1100 or 1200. And the fact that it's so far above 
uh, is obviously indicating that you know central banks are are have have been uh, the primary reason for for the divergence, mm-hmm. right? So so I guess you could argue that uh, okay maybe that continues, and and uh, that's that's a positive catalyst for gold. I actually tend to take the other side of the argument. I worry that the that uh, how how do you know when the central banks are done buying and and it, whether or not the central banks need to liquidate gold? Mm. Okay, especially since mm. the central banks that are buying are probably the sanctioned central banks, right? With that are trying to get away from the U.S. dollar. But if if they're stockpiling gold at some point, they need to pay their bills. Where are they going to sell? Yeah. Okay. So Great point. So, so that so that worries me, and so the the fact that uh, you know the the distance from eighteen hundred down to twelve hundred is uh, is a is a very large gulf that doesn't make me feel good about gold. And the the last thing I'll say about this is that you know gold, um, I, I guess it's it's the closest you can come to a commodity that's also considered to be a form of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's non-interest bearing money. And now you've got interest bearing money paying you 5%. That's right. I'll pass. I personally, I'm not a fan myself. Yeah. Excellent points and counter to a lot of what we hear from people who are <laughs> bullish gold, who tend to be kind of firmly in that camp. We're, we're, we're out of time, but I want to ask you one last question. We, we dropped in the chats where you can find um, Michael Substack. Um, in, in one of them, you talk about something because um, everyone's, We've got so many things that seem like they're on a hairpin. We've got these geopolitical stresses, central bank stresses, currency stresses. Everyone, we've had people ask in the shows, you know, what do you think the next black swan is? Which we know it wouldn't be a black swan if you can identify it. But you talk about gray rhinos. Which I thought was so interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, beware the gray rhino. What's that? It, it, well, that that's actually okay. So in my I, Last weekend, I put out a thread uh, that talked about this West Point symposium that I presented at, and uh, it was basically just summarizing some of the keynote uh, uh, comments from one of our ex-ambassadors, and he was talking. I, I found that I, it was the first time I had heard that term, um, and as I as I kind of you know weighed into this this sort of military uh, realm of and uh, of uh, of things, I find it. Just fascinating because the the lingo is is uh, a, a kind that I'm not used to. But a gray rhino is defined as I guess uh, something a, a a threat that is uh, what well known, well broadcast, right? But but yet largely ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so a, a relatively high probability threat that is yet largely ignored. So when you at, when you when you when you told me that you're going to ask me about that, I, I was starting to think, hmm, what what could what could that be? I mean, I, I'll, I'll throw one out there. I'm just shooting from the hip right now, but I, I think a, a a gray rhino would be um, a a uh, geopolitical event that spiked the price of oil, for instance, and and we, and we get caught short because our SPR levels are so low. Everybody's been talking about it forever, right? And 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 um, oil prices are soft because of uh, demand destruction and whatnot. 
but yet that is one of these gray rhino things that um, I think people just sort of just poo-poo and just say, ah, you know, it's not there. And certainly I, I feel like the administration treats it as a gray rhino and that worries me. Yeah. That's where that's that's how a gray rhino can morph into a black swan. Right. And they're and they're highly impactful. I think it's I think it's such a great thank you for introducing us to that because I think that <laughs> Um, you know, I'm sure that it's 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 in the military, they may have been talking about it, but I think economically right now, given all these sort of, you know, interconnected threats, it's that perfect storm, right? It's it's like everyone knows it's out there, but no one thinks it's gonna happen because they didn't anticipate that the these events all happening at the same time. And that's always like sort of the, you know, the match in the uh in the dry. Uh, the dry hay. So that that I think that's so interesting. We're gonna we're gonna stay on that, Michael. We're out of time. This has been such a fantastic conversation. So happy to have you back on. And you're gonna have Thank to. You. We're gonna have to have you back on on a Friday when we can do it for an hour and really delve into your. I think everyone's really excited to hear about this piece that you wrote about the dollar. Um, everyone stopped talking about it, and we shouldn't have. And it's it's still very much an issue. So really interesting thinking around that. Hope you'll come back and and dive into it a little deeper. Absolutely. And next time I'll wear uh, shoes that match your blouse. Yeah. Well, first of all, you have wicked right. shoes. I saw a picture on Twitter. You have some killer shoes. We know from the mosh pit reference that you're a music man. You're going to have to come on my life in four trades so we can really get into some of those interesting parts of your life. You're going to have to, you're going to have to do that for me. You come on, you come on the podcast. It'll be great. Good. Awesome. <laughs> Michael, so much fun. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank to all you. of you. Everybody's been loving it and, and commenting as we go. So um, there's a lot of appreciation for you today, Michael. Thank you so much, Maggie. Appreciate awesome it. Awesome stuff. Thanks to all of you. We'll be back again the same time tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.